Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Good morning. You would turn in your Bibles to uh, James chapter 5. Praise the Lord. James chapter 5, verse 16. It says, James chapter 5, verse 16 and 17. And 18. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Praise the Lord. How many like to be healed? This is a promise here. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Start thinking now. Don't just listen to the Word. Start thinking about what doubts go into your mind when you hear that. I'm just being honest. Are you saying to yourself right now, but I prayed for this, and it didn't happen. I prayed for that, and I really believed, but it didn't happen. How many of that's crossed your mind reading that? Man, it'd be really nice if we could be honest in here. How many of that's ever crossed your mind when you read that? I'm just being honest here. We've got to be honest or we can't get everything God has for us. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. What he's saying is Elijah was just a common person. No, nobody really knew much about Elijah. He was kind of a nobody that came out of the wilderness, out of nowhere. He said, wait a minute, that's Elijah. He was one of the greatest prophets that ever lived. But what he's saying is he's a human like us and really just a pretty common person. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. So a three and a half year period, and then it says, again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. Do you notice that God wants us to know something about Elijah, about how God will hear your prayer? God wants to give us a Holy Spirit message on how he will hear your prayers. And if we don't see the example of Elijah there's a good chance that we will have unanswered prayers. But if we see the example that he's given, and we really study it and apply it, I believe that God will begin to answer our prayers. Amen? Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, right now, Lord, this is your message. Lord, you spoke it, Lord. Father, I pray that you speak it through me, Lord God. Humble me, Lord God, make me less and make you more, Lord. In your name we pray. And everybody said, Amen. Praise the Lord. Um, I've heard from the Lord. Praise the Lord. In fact, this uh, message, we were in the prayer room, and just waves of the Holy Spirit started giving me this message. And uh, it was just flowing through this message. And you say, wait a minute, come on. You know, we've got low attendance today, small church. God probably is speaking in the bigger churches. I hope you don't come in the house of the Lord like that because 
God is speaking today and you might miss it. You might miss it. So we need to really focus on what God's trying to say to us today. This uh, passage is the key to answered prayer. And so I started writing down some different questions here to myself about the promise here about answered prayer. My first question is, have you ever prayed and were not received an answer? How many have ever been through the disappointment? Man, Chad, you know what? That's one of the reasons I'm mad still. I'm just being honest. It's the Holy Spirit saying, hey, listen. He's telling you an emotion that's went through your heart here. That's why I'm still mad at God. Because He said, I asked, I asked, He didn't answer. So I'm still mad. And I want to know why God didn't answer my question. And there's a lot of agnostic, atheists, a lot of uh, people sitting in churches who are disappointed, angry, mad at God because He didn't answer their prayer. And so now they can't move forward. They're, they're abandoned in their relationship to God. Their relationship has been broken because they had a prayer and God didn't answer it. And if you don't hear what I'm saying today, you're going to stay in that place away from God and never know how to have an answered prayer because God's trying to tell you why I do not answer prayers. You say, does the Bible say that? He's, I thought God was Santa Claus. I thought it was that great Santa Claus in the sky that when I asked something, God, you finally got me to this place where I'm going to finally ask you, and here I did it, and you failed me. Who do you think you are? The sovereign living God of the universe and some snotty little kid comes up to God and says, God, I finally asked you and you failed me. I'm just trying to tell you that that is not the right attitude to have in front of God. And let me tell you something. Every single person in this church has had prayers that have not been answered. And there's a reason why, and we need to figure out the reason why, because if we don't, Satan will twist who it is. He'll twist your perception of who God is. He'll, 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 He'll... uh, twist uh, the goodness of God. How many know that? How many have ever had the goodness of God twisted up? What, what do you mean, twisted up the goodness of God? How can you twist up the goodness of God? He's good all the time. Oh, did, did you hear that? The foul, the enemy just put something in your head when I said that. God's good all the time. And in your spirit said, wasn't this time, wasn't that time, wasn't this situation, wasn't that situation. You see how he twists the goodness, the love, the blessing of God, and we start getting perceptions that aren't biblical. And God's trying to explain to us what's happening here. Why is the prayer not answered? And how can I have answered prayer? And how can I live for God like He wants me to live for God? And man, if you don't hear this message... You might go your whole life with a perception of God that's so twisted that you'll never know God in your life ever. You say, that's kind of harsh. You need to understand why God doesn't answer prayer. It's very important. So as we begin to look, it says, look at the example. In fact, let me ask some more questions I have here. I love the questions. Because the questions kind of open our hearts up because they're universal questions. And some of us think that, well, man, I'm the only one. 
that says these things. You know, I'm just so analytical and so much more intelligent than everybody. I ask these, but the mere mortals don't ask, ask these questions, right? I'm sarcastic, I'm sorry. But uh, your mind's more sarcastic than my message probably, okay? So I'm coming down to earth here. How long did you pray? That's my next question. Number one, have you prayed and received no answer? In the time you prayed and had no answer, how long did you actually pray? You know, uh, you ever been to a fountain with lots of coins on the bottom? God? Look, this. Sometimes it's not much more than that, right? God, uh, I've gotten myself in a bad situation or circumstances that were beyond my control have got me in a bad circumstance. How many have ever been there? I've been there. So I'll use my first lifeline. Um, what do you want, friend on the phone? Or do you want God? I'll take God on this one. So use your first lifeline. And God doesn't take you out of your situation. God doesn't answer your lifeline. So it's not a long prayer. Or maybe it's a year of wondering why God didn't answer my prayer. And then we go back to saying, God, uh, I ask you. And you didn't answer, so now I'm mad. I've been mad. Anybody here been mad? We've all been mad, right? How did you react when he didn't answer it? There's a lot that can be said about your faith by how you react when something doesn't go our way and God doesn't change it. I mean, no, that tells you a lot about your faith. It just reveals things about your faith. Uh, it'll reveal things about your husband or wife. You know? Things don't go your way, and everything went wrong, and you look at your husband or wife, and you say, this is what I think. It reveals some things, right? So when you go through something, and God doesn't spare you, and God doesn't answer your prayer like you wanted it to, it'll really affect your mind and tell you things about your faith. Did you know in that circumstance that God does want to answer your prayers? Did you know that in the circumstance? Did you know that all the way through? Did you realize that God actually does want to answer your prayer? And how quick did you lose that understanding? Does that make sense? How quickly did you lose your understanding that God wants to answer my prayers? Because everything in prayer is based on God wants to answer my prayers. And when you lose that, then you may not actually find an answer to your prayer. So as we begin to look, in fact, uh, he says in the verses before the one I read in 16 and 17, he says, is anyone among you in trouble? This is verse 13, James 5, 13. Is any one of you in trouble? Remember, this is the person in trouble, and they're reaching out to God. God's not answering the question, right? God's not answering the prayer. Uh, he's not responding for some reason. Is anybody anybody in trouble? Let me can raise your hand. I've been in trouble. I've had a problem or a trouble. Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call for the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayers offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up if they have sinned, and they will be forgiven. 
You see that God is saying, if you're in trouble, pray. If you're sick, pray. If you've got a problem, pray. God is actually telling us to come to Him, right? That I want to answer your prayer. I want the prayer to be answered, but yet the prayer wasn't answered. So something must be missing or something must be being revealed through the life of Elijah that helps us get answered prayer. And if we follow the pattern that Elijah did in his life, it'll give us a, a, a insight into how to have answered prayer. How many want answered prayer? This house is dependent on prayers being answered because here's the thing. God chose prayer to accomplish things. You say, man, what a strange thing. Why would God choose Prayer. Why would God say, let me give you a strange line in the Bible. Pray to the Lord of the harvest, Jesus said, to send more workers. Why is He making them pray for something? Why did God just send workers for the harvest? Why do they have to pray? Because God is dependent on our prayers. Why is God dependent on our prayers? Because if God just poured His blessing on this person or that person or this person or that person without prayer, God wouldn't be fair. You say, well, who's able to pray? Everybody. You can't speak. You're in a hospital bed. You're in a coma. Guess what? You can still pray. Did you know that? You can still pray. Anybody in this world can pray, and God has decided it's going to be through prayer that I'm going to bless people. Through prayer. So we had better get really good at it. Like really figure out what is the pattern for answered prayer. And I think Elijah is a great example because he gives the example of Elijah and he says, Elijah was a human being even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. But he's giving us an example of a three and a half year prayer. Again, I ask you, how long have you prayed for something? Because this is a prayer that was a three and a half year process with Elijah. And so Elijah was teaching us about prayer over a period of three and a half years. And so let's look at where God took him over the three and a half years because there's a chance that God may take us to that same place in our life. So we begin in 1 Kings, and really look at this very closely because I want everybody to have answered prayers. But look in 1 Kings chapter 17, and here Elijah comes on the scene. It says, now Elijah, 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1. It says, now Elijah the Tishbite. What is a Tishbite? Sounds like something you'd call your little brother, wouldn't it? You little Tishbite. <laughs> I don't know what it is. It just means stranger or wanderer. It was a little area there around Moab. All right? He was a, it was actually the tribe of Naphtali was in that area, so he was probably Jewish. Um, he comes from this little area. He's kind of a stranger. Here's what it's trying to tell you through Ishbite. He's a nobody. And it's hard to think of Elijah as a nobody. 
But see, he was all alone in a wilderness area. He was rugged. He was used to traveling around that wilderness, all right? And so he comes from the wilderness, and it says, Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand. Do you see that he comes from nowhere? And he says to King Ahab, Ahab is the king over northern Israel. His palace is probably in Samaria. And this is the period of time when Israel split into two sides. There was the north, there was the south. The north capital was Samaria. The king was Ahab. His wife's name was Jezebel. And then there was the southern part, which capital was Jerusalem. So the king most likely was in his palace in Samaria. And if you go directly east, uh, you'll see the area across the Jordan where Elijah lives, in the wilderness area, area, kind of a rough terrain. And he was going over to the palace, and he addresses Ahab, and he says, As the Lord the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain the years except by my word. Wow, that's pretty bold. There's not even going to be dew on the ground that's going to be so dry in your country. There's not going to be any rain until my word says there's going to be rain. Can you imagine saying that? Can you imagine going to the President of the United States, walking into his office and say, hey, as sure as God lives until I give the word, there'll be rain or even dew on the ground. So God takes a nobody who's been pretty isolated. There's no fanfare around him. Let's see, uh, it doesn't say Elijah and his posse, or Elijah and his boys, or Elijah and his crew. It says Elijah comes from the wilderness, and he shows up in the king's office, and he says, hey, there's going to be no dew, there's going to be no rain, there's going to be nothing until I say. (laughs) Okay, that's pretty bold, right? And he goes on, he says, And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here, turn east, and hide yourself in the brook Kareth, which is east of the Jordan. Now I read that several times. I thought the pronunciation was Cherith, but it's Kareth. So God pronounces a famine on the land. And he tells Elijah, now I want you to go to a certain location, and when you get there, I'm going to take care of you. And he says, it's east of the Jordan, which is actually an area that's close to where he's from. He says, you will drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Kareth, the east of the Jordan, and the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Now the historians, Jewish historians, will tell you he was there about a year. How long is there going to be a famine? Three and a half years. So this is a man who's trying to give us an example of how to have answered prayer. Okay? Now God, Elijah during this whole time, believes he's the only prophet left in the land. He believes this. He believes that there's nobody left the world that's following the Lord 
and hearing from the Lord, and he's the only one. Now God a little later explains to him after rain comes three and a half years later that I actually have 7,000 people that haven't bowed their knee to Baal. And so he realizes a, you know, an area that maybe the size of New Jersey, um, 7,000 people were there. That's pretty good, actually. God had preserved a remnant even through the darkest days. Now we begin to look at Elijah's name. And Elijah's name becomes a uh, definition of the kind of person he is. It says, Elijah, Eli, and Yah means uh, the Lord is my God. How many of you can relate to that name? You're in a world around you that's dark and people are kind of doing their own thing and you might be the type of person that's like Elijah. And Elijah's personality was, hey, uh, if you have any questions, the Lord is my God. There's no doubt here. There's no doubt. Everywhere that I go, when I go to work, when I go out, when I socialize, wherever I'm at, that's who I am, that's what I am. The Lord is my God. You know, He is my Lord. And you say, well, why is that important? Because the nation was going through the darkest time they had ever had. They were under the administration of Ahab and Jezebel. And unless you understand Ahab and Jezebel, you don't understand why it's so important that he says, the Lord is my God. Because under Ahab and Jezebel, now here's a problem. You say, well, Ahab and Jezebel replaced God and so God's over here trying to do his thing. And then uh, Ahab and Jezebel bring a thing called Baal worship. In fact, let's read uh, 16 right before 17 where I just read. It gives a definition of Ahab's reign. It says, in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, so that's the other part, Asa's ruling there, and actually they're very righteous. They're doing really well. But it says, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign in Israel, which is the northern part. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel and Samaria for 22 years. Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who had ever been before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, Jeroboam was very wicked. And he said the things that Jeroboam did were like lightweight stuff. Right? It was like lightweight stuff. He's doing much heavier stuff than Jeroboam wickedly. It says... Um, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal. Remember that. Ethbaal is the king of the Sidonians and went and served Baal and worshipped him. So this king actually went to Sidon, which is up by Tyre in the northern part of Israel. He took his wife, was that man's daughter, and this was like the headquarters of Baal worship. And Ahab, the king of Israel, began to worship Baal. And when you hear that, you say, well, man, I don't even know much about this Baal worship. But here's what it was. When you go to God, and God doesn't answer your prayers, hmm. Ted, couldn't they just be separate? This isn't what was happening here. They would ask God, and they would go to the altar of God, God wasn't answering their prayer for some reason, so do you know what they did? They walked to the altar of Baal. And rather than finding out why won't God answer our prayers, Baal was an altar of convenience. Baal was the God of, uh, like a nature God. Alright? 
And Baal was the God who they thought brought fertility to their land. He was the God of the dew. Remember he said no dew will be on the land for three and a half years. He was the God of the rain, they believed. They believed he was the God that rode on the clouds and, and caused the thunder. He was the God that brought a abundant harvest for Israel. See, they started mixing Baal worship with God worship. They didn't replace it. They mixed them. And so as you begin to serve Baal, well, man, it had some real perks to it. When Baal worship began to come in, then the people were allowed to fornicate in any way they want. And you read about it and you say, well, why do you bring that up? Because it's the number one thing about it. Anywhere you read, anywhere you study about this Baal, it gave them a freedom of lifestyle. They could fornicate, which means basically they could have intercourse before they were married and they could do it with anybody they wanted to, male, female. And uh, temple prostitutes were part of the worship. And it was really a disgusting thing that Ahab tried to bring into Israel and did. In fact, his wife, Jezebel, brought in, it says at her table there were 450 priests of Baal that sat at her table in her palace in Israel with Ahab. And there were 400 Asherah priests. So 850 were in the palace. And they built temples for them around the temple of God. And you say, well man, what does this mean? This is a picture of a nation who is a theocracy. In fact, the purest example of what Israel was supposed to be is the church. You say, what's the example for Israel there? And in the, in the study of ecclesiology, the church actually is. Because as a nation of Israel, if there was some type of sinful behavior and sexuality that was being allowed in the nation of Israel, um, at that time the judgment was, um, you're to stone them and get that out of here. And you say, well, was that what we do in the church now? No, Paul addresses in Corinthians, and he says, now it's not stoning. Now it's judge the church and make sure these things aren't happening in your church. And he says, don't have fellowship with it in, in the church. You say, well, what outside the church? He says, they're going to do what they want. We don't judge the people outside the church. But in the church, we're very cautious that these don't, things do not happen in the church. And if it were to happen in the church... If those two things were to mix like they did in this period of time, God would not answer their prayers. Well, how do you know that? Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 11. I'm going to give you some more as we go along. But they were beginning to mix the two together, and God said, no, you know, I've called you to be pure. I've called you to worship me. I've called you to apply yourself so I can answer your prayers, so I can answer your prayers. But God wasn't answering, so immediately they should have thought as a nation, what? Something's wrong. Something's messed up in our nation, and God is not answering our prayers because of what's messed up in our country. Right? But they didn't do that. They walked from the altar of God over to the altar of Baal, and they kept going back and forth. It says they were limping back and forth to those two altars. And so they weren't getting any answers from God, so they were saying, well, maybe Baal will answer our prayers, uh, because God certainly won't. 
right? Deuteronomy 11 says this, verse 13. It says, if you faithfully obey the commands I'm giving you today to love your God and to serve him with all of your heart and with all of your soul, then I will send rain on your land in its season, both autumn and spring rain, so that you may gather in your grain, new wine and olive oil. I will provide grass fields for your cattle. You will eat and be satisfied. Be careful, or you will be enticed to turn away and worship what? Other gods and bow down to them. Then the Lord's anger will burn against you, and God will shut up the heavens, and it will not rain, and the ground will yield no produce, and you will soon perish from the good land the Lord is giving you. You see that this is the curse that God is trying to lovingly say, you're not right with God. You say, well, man, it's awful. There's a famine now. We can't grow fruit. We're dying. The worst thing is to go into eternity without God. And what God's trying to show them is, if you ever get off course as a nation, the thing you're going to know that I'm going to do to you is I'm going to withhold the rain. So here's Elijah, the nobody. And he's coming to proclaim the message that you've crossed the line. And you say, well, what's the rain mean to a church? Hmm. Glad you asked. If a church isn't being obedient to God, if they're not walking after God, if their prayers are not prayers to the living God and their prayers are to prayers of convenience, you know, a lot of our prayers are very similar to what theirs were. We'll see this in a minute. They were praying things to God and God was not answering because they didn't pray appropriately to the living God. And so they were worshiping and serving the things of this world. And so God sends Elijah, and he says, just let him know this message, Elijah. Tell him that there will be no rain, and this is going to be really funny for you, Elijah. Tell him that there won't be rain again until you say there is. <laughs> okay? So I would imagine, what do you think? Maybe Elijah's riding really high right now. You know, he's like, hey, you know, kind of his thumbs in his suspenders and just kind of walking back out, you know, and like, yep, no, God said, hey, go to this place called Kareth. And the reason why I think it's funny that it's pronounced Kareth is because uh, God's going to care for him completely, but some of you might think that, hey, uh, God's not really taking very good care of me, okay? Because see, here's what's happening. God is making a person of prayer. He has to do some work on Elijah because what's going to happen here in the next three years, three and a half years, is God is going to have a confrontation on top of a mountain called Carmel. Mount Carmel. You, you know Mount Carmel, Mount Carmel? He's going to be on top of the mountain and there's going to be two altars there. Like there's no altars left in Israel because Jezebel and Ahab were so wicked. There's no altars left. There's almost not a prophet left. Because they've killed, all the, they've killed all the prophets. There's no prophecy. There's no altar coming before God. And he's going to call one man, Elijah, to come in and repair the altar and restore the nation. And you say, what's this have to do with answered prayer? Because God birthed it in him. It took one person who nobody even knew about. And you say, well, I thought 
life would probably be from a big church. I thought maybe he'd be somebody that'd be famous. Or somebody that had a lot of people around him. No, he was somebody that was obedient to God alone. So, man, I don't know if I want to go to a church that doesn't have a good attendance on Sunday. And I tell you something, I get excited in these circumstances. The first ministry job I got called to, like official ministry position, our pastor had resigned because of an affair. We had eight kids left in our youth group. All right, and about two of them were getting ready to leave because they were the music minister's kids, and she was leaving. And God said, hey, uh, this would be a great time for you to uh, go on and do that ministry. And I was like, yeah, I'm ready. And you know what? It didn't uh, bother me at all. It didn't bother me that it was a dark time. It didn't bother me it was a bad time. Because when you're faithful and you minister to God, you don't really care. My second ministry job, maybe the most popular youth pastor they had ever had was there. He laughed. He'd been eight years. And they said, hey, they're never going to be able to replace him. I'd hate to be the guy after him. God said, hey, Chad, you mind going, doing that youth? No, that's great. I'm perfect. How can you do that? How can you do that when you... I mean, wouldn't you be worried like people would say, hey, you don't have great attendance? Or you'll never live up to the shadow that that person casts, or it'd be too difficult because they're going to think this, and they're going to think that, and they're going to think this. No, it's never crossed mine. I'm just enjoying myself ministering to my Lord. But some people look around, and they say, man, I feel a whole lot better if there's lots of people. I feel a whole lot better if there's lots of crowds, and then I, then I got my next Mr. job. Come and replace Pastor Rod. We love him. There's nobody else that's ever been like him. And I don't disagree. But you would think I would say, I don't want, I wouldn't touch that job with a 10-foot pole. But I'm really happy. You say, oh man, I bet he's really dead now. The, you know, he doesn't have as many people in the seats. I don't it doesn't bother me. I'm just as happy to preach to one as I am to preach to hundred or a thousand. You say, you're lying. You're lying, Chad. I'm not lying. Because what happened to Elijah has to happen to somebody who's going to hear from the Lord. He went to a place called Kareth, and Kareth means the cutting away. Well, that don't mean anything to you. But the cutting away, it was a little mountain cliff made of rock. And nobody lived there. Just wild animals lived there and nobody else. And God said, hey, go to that go to that ravine called Kareth. And when you get there, I'm going to provide for you with uh, ravens. <laughs> that sounds like a really good idea. First of all, he was Jewish and they were unclean. And what are they going to be carrying? Because you've seen the things that the blackbirds like. You've seen the things the ravens like. It's usually rotten, flat, maggots. It's terrible food, right? So it's like, uh, you know, go to the river Cherith, Cherith, and I'm going to care for you really well. And, uh, and he's thinking, oh boy, a big pile of maggots every day. That's, that sounds like a good meal. 
<laughs> okay? But he was obedient. And remember, the whole nation of Israel suffering through a famine. And this thing only overflowed with water in, in, in times where there was full water, and it was so rare that water would come down there that it actually cut all the way through the rock a little stream. And he said, Elijah, go sit by that stream, and I'm going to take care of you for a year. And he said, well, man, what's this have to do with anything? You're telling me about a prophet, you know, in 800 B.C. You know, why does that matter to me? Because we all want to be Elijah doing great things on Mount Carmel. That's the prayer that we envision. We envision the prayer where God mightily comes up God mightily does a miracle. God does an amazing thing. He answered our prayer. It's glorious. And now, God, I'll serve you. But before there could be a Carmel, there had to be a Cherith. Because Elijah wasn't ready for Carmel. Do you know what would happen if God answered all your prayers the way you want them answered? Like, God, I need a car, and I don't just want any car. I want a cat. Oh, I want a sports car, and then I'll know that you're God. And I'm sure you're going to fall right in line, and you're just going to serve God the rest of your life because He gave you that sports car. How many know that we want prayers answered, and very similar to what they were doing with Baal? They were saying, give me material things, give me this, give me that, give me this, give me that, and God was no more than the tooth fairy of Santa Claus, or a wishing well. God was saying, that's not this God works, that's how that God works. And so God takes him to Cherith, and I've been there. You say, well, you haven't even went to Israel yet, how have you been there? Because I sat by the brook and drank of the water of the brook, and it's just a tiny little stream of polluted water and rock. But every day, Elijah would just take what God gave him. He just took it, he would say, there's my water. And faithfully, that water would come down that little ravine in the cutting place. And every day, well, it's about time for my Amazon raven to come. Some of you have looked at your uh, Amazon truck kind of like raven, right? Don't lie. But here comes the raven. Bring him bread and meat. <laughs> okay, it's amazing. And you say, well, that's never going to happen to me. That's what happens to those who love the Lord. You say, well, what's happening to me? I don't know what's going on, Chad. My transmission went out. Can I tell you something? I've had two transmissions go out the last year. You say, why did we hear about that? Because I've sat by the brook and God's taken care of me. You say, you must have a lot of money in savings. I don't have any money in savings. I just paid off uh, both of them, didn't I? Take me, what, two years maybe? Two years ago, I had both of them go out. My truck has 342,000 miles on it. So I thought you had a new truck, Chad. No, I've, I've sat by the brook, no resources, and I've sat and I just said, Lord, whatever you give me, and I'm happy. I've been poor, I've been hated, I've been persecuted, I've been cut down, and all those things, but you still sit there and say, God, I'm still going to be faithful because Yahweh is my God. And so he sat there and he just allowed him to be satisfied by what God gives him. And you say, Chad, I don't like that message. There's so many pastors out there telling me I can get a Cadillac and you're telling me just to take what God gives me. If you can't just take what God gives you, then you don't understand what your life was given for. 
You think your life ends when you die. But the Bible says this life is a very short period of time and eternity is forever. And you're living for this life. And Jesus says if you live for this life, it'll be lost. But if you give up your life for me, it'll be gained and I can bless you. And so I've sat by the brook like Elijah. Man, can you see this one man of God just laying there every day in a wilderness? And let me tell you something. In the nation of Israel, they hated his name. He was the hated one. Jezebel had a a manhunt for his life for a long time. They looked every nook and cranny. They had people searching the entire nation. They were looking everywhere for him. But nobody looked on the backside of a little rock cliff by a little stream. And they should have looked to see where all the ravens were going with all that food. It was like ravens carrying Big Macs and ravens carrying quarter pounders and, you know, ravens. He was being taken care of by God. He was in a place called Kareth. And you say, well, man, God hates me. God hates me, man. I went through unemployment. God never answers my prayers. I wanted a job. And God couldn't even give me a job. No, I wanted God to do this, and God didn't do it. And I wanted God to do this, and God didn't do it. And I want God to do this. Man, you know, Elijah could have had a pity party on the backside of the wilderness. He could have said, man, God really hates me. I'm eating from these dirty birds. I I don't even have a meal. You know, they're probably over there, you know, eating at a buffet in the other part of the country, and here I am being fed by birds. And sometimes that's our attitude. But if that's your attitude, you'll probably never have answered prayer. And then he says, it says that the water began to get less and less and less and find it dried up. Why? Because there's a famine in the land. And now God has another easy thing. He had to learn first to have answered prayer. Yes, he had to learn first that God is going to meet my needs. You understand that? God was teaching him, I will meet your needs, Elijah. And see, here's what happens when we get a prayer... God doesn't answer it the way we want or the way we think. We we begin to say to ourselves, God will not take care of me. God will not take care of me. And when you say God will not take care of me and you abandon the process, you're never going to see the raven bring you a buffet meal. Okay, you're never going to sit by the brook and the water come down like a fountain every day. You're never going to experience God's provision because you went out and made your own provision. And so you're not getting the lesson that God's trying to teach you that, hey, I can take care of you. How many have ever learned that lesson? i got nothing left, and God's taking care of me. I'm, I should be really upset here, but like I've had peace. And then he says, okay, the water's ran out now, Elijah. Let's go to lesson number two. And he says, leave that place you're at in the east. Cross all the way over and go all the way up. I want you to go to... Jezebel, hometown, in Sidon. Did you know Zarephath was in her hometown? So she's got a man up for his life, and he says, now I want you to go over to her hometown, which is outside Israel to the north, and I want you to live there, and when you get there, you're going to find a widow who's so poor, she's down to her last meal and she's about to die. And she has a son 
who hasn't a father. You didn't hear that. You're going to go to a pagan woman in Jezebel's hometown. You're going to live there and you're going to be taken care of by this widow woman who's about to die because she's on her last bit of food. She's got one meal left in her kitchen. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to that town where the person who is from there had a manhunt for your life. This is the nest of your enemy. All right? And I'm going to spread out a table for you there in the presence of your enemies. Baal has 850 prophets that are eating well during the time of famine in Jezebel's table. God has one person eating at his table. All right? Remember that when they get ready to battle. So he goes there. She's gathering sticks. They've got certain rules that help widows survive. She's gathering sticks for a fire to bake her last meal, she believes, and she's going to die with her son. And God says, go ask her for a glass of water and a piece of bread. (laughs) Now see, he read David's writings that say, I've never seen the righteous beg for bread. And you know, David's kind of saying, the righteous don't need to beg for bread. They work hard for a living. Right? God blesses them. They don't need bread. But do you know that God will bring you a place sometimes where it doesn't make sense? What is supposed to happen isn't happening. And you have to beg for bread from the lowest. There was nobody lower on the ladder than this widow. You understand that? If you're so poor, you're down to your last meal, there's nobody lower. And was pagan. And he says, you, the righteous man, the only one left in the land, go to her and ask for bread and water. He says, can I have some water? She said, I'll go get you water, which is amazing. She was that kind. And he says, oh yeah, and bake me a piece of bread so I can eat. And she says, we don't have any bread. She said, we're getting ready to our last one and die. We don't have any. And he said, you go bake a piece of bread and you'll never run out. And God's trying to teach her a lesson, or him a lesson. What's the lesson that God is trying to teach him? He's beginning to teach him how to pray. So how's he trying to teach her how to pray? Because he takes them to the lowest of the low, the neediest of the neediest. And he says, I want you to love the lowest of the low. The neediest of the neediest. And you say, well, what's God trying to do here? Shortly after He comes, she bakes Him a bread and then God puts a blessing on this woman's kitchen where flour will never run out, oil will never run out as long as there's a drought. God does a supernatural miracle and feeds Elijah and the poorest of the poor in the midst of His enemies. And God begins to show because you are compassionate for the people around you, that God's going to pour a blessing that you cannot even contain. And you say, what's that have to do with me? Because before, Elijah only thought about himself. And what God wants to do is transform your prayers. Oh, that's shouting stuff. He took him away from himself. I'm not worried about Elijah anymore because... Elijah will be provided 
in the worst famine, and the ravens will bring me food. But now he's saying, I'm trying to mature your prayer life. One of the reasons that you're never getting answers to prayer is because it's all about you. You're so selfish. You're so into yourself. And God, we were in the prayer room and God was just saying, pray for the body. Pray for the weakest. Pray for the poorest. And God, what He wants to begin to do is to transform our churches to where our prayer is for the prayers of the needs of the body. And when the church begins to hear the cry of the body, she heard the cry of a little boy who was about to die because he was sick. Do you know the church sometimes is so well off and so wealthy and so well to do that our prayers don't even hear the prayers of the unrighteous? And so put him in a home of a pagan woman and they were about to die of starvation and God began to bless that woman. And then... Right after God begins to bless that woman, her son dies. Oh, wow. She began to get angry at Elijah. She began to blame Elijah that Elijah had done this thing to her. She said, well, how is that possible? She's got flour and oil that's not running out in a famine. But this is what happens. When you're a person who loves the Lord and you're a leader, the people are going to blame everything on you. But God had made a man that it didn't affect him. It didn't affect him, but man, he loved that boy. He loved this orphan and this widow. Hello? And all of his prayers were focused on that little boy. And he began to match his body up when the boy died. And he put his head with his head, his hand with his hand, his feet with his feet. And the intercession that began to pour for lost. And God began to bring revival. God brought revival in a nation that was dark, a nation that was steeped in pagan religion, took him to the backyard of Jezebel, poorest family probably in that town, and God began to pour compassion upon the man of prayer. And can you see this being a Example of the church. When God begins to, through our lifestyle, you say, oh no, you go back to that. God's going to make me sit by the river, learn to receive from Him, learn to be happy with what God puts in my life, be happy with the circumstances God put me in, stay faithful to God even when everything looks bad, and then God is going to do something in me where He's going to make me begin to have compassion for those who are around me. I'm going to have so much compassion for my wife. I'm going to have such compassion for my husband. I'm going to have so much compassion for my church. I'm going to have so much compassion for my pastor. Oh, not him. Not him. He's got it all figured out. He don't. God's going to pour compassion for one another. God's going to pour an anointing. Do you know that, in, and I forgot about this, Cherith, they said about the only thing that grew by that brook on that mountainside was olives. I had to reread it. It was a secular uh, definition of the area. It said olive trees grow there. And you know, that's the anointing of God. God gave him an anointing. And the anointing oil was right there. And he takes him to Zarephath, spreads it at a table out in the presence of his enemy. He begins to have compassion for the Sidonians. 
God begins to pour it out. He's interceding for his enemies. <laughs> Do you see what God's doing here? He's going to confront the prophets of Baal, but right now he's got so much intercession and love for the Sidonians. And then God says, okay, you know what the name of Zarephath means? Kind of interesting. I know it's not a mistake. It means the refining furnace. It means a place where metals or gold was refined. It's the refining furnace, and it's called Zarephath. You see God refining this man? You say, man, how did, this is how I get answered prayer? Yeah. This is how you say, well, I've got all kinds of needs I want to ask God. Well, God first wants you to know He'll provide for your needs, but He'll do it His way. Be content. Then He's going to say, while you're in your need, I'm going to pour out compassion for other people. You're going to be serving the lowest of the low. What does that mean? That means I'm going to pour myself out in my church. I'm going to pour out myself with my neighbor. I'll pour out myself with people at work. You say, but i got needs, Lord. God says, pour it out the lowest. You want to answer prayer? Go to the refining furnace and love people when you're hurting. So what it will do to it? It humble you. It will give you humility like you can't believe. And now God says, Elijah, you're ready to have answered prayer. He still hasn't had his answered prayer. His prayer was rain. So James says, look at Elijah. It didn't rain for three and a half years, but finally he got the answer to his prayer, and that's your answer. However, he gets how you're going to do it. And so now God says, go find Ahab. Well, you got to remember, Ahab has been looking on a manhunt for him for a long time. He and Jezebel sent people everywhere. They went to other countries looking for him. They looked everywhere. So he sends his servant Obadiah out, and uh, Ahab takes half the land, Obadiah takes the other half, and they're over near there, Mount Carmel there, and, and, he, and, and all of a sudden, Obadiah is looking for grass because almost no in the land is there grass because of a three and a half year famine and drought, right? So all of a sudden, the prophet pops out, okay? And Obadiah is there and goes, whoa, he recognized him. He said, what are you doing here? And he says, I just sent a message to Ahab. And he said, I need to meet with him. So Ahab met with him, King Ahab, and he said, uh, God's going to bring rain. But here's what I need you to do first. Now, of course, they want rain, right? So you're going to listen to the prophet because you're ready for that rain. It's been three and a half years. The entire nation is dying. Okay, how many know this is serious? And so he says, gather all the people together. The entire Israel, send a message out that I want them all on Mount Carmel. And on top of Mount Carmel, I also want you to invite the 850 priests. There were 450 Baal, 400 Asherah, and I assume there was a Baal altar on top of that mountain. That mountain was green. It was one of the few places grass was left. It was beautiful, mild temperatures there. It was the home court of the prophets of Baal. One prophet eating at the table of the Lord, 850 of them, the table of Jezebel, the entire nation's gathered around the mountain, and there were, I believe, two altars there. There was one that was broken, beaten down, hadn't been used for a long time. And it was the altar of Jehovah, the altar of God, the altar of the God that Elijah served, which is what his name says. 
And then there was the altar of Baal that had 850 people attending to it. And he said, okay, we're going to have a contest to see who the real God is. And so they made, I, they made, they made their altar. He said, make your altar, put a bullock on it, uh, a bull, and I want you to slaughter it up, and I want you to come to it, and, and, and only God can provide the fire to consume the sacrifice. This is one of the reasons why I say they were really mixing the two together, because they were doing a sacrifice very similar to what Elijah was doing on the other side, and there were two altars there. Do you know why that, wall, that altar was needed repair and was broken? Because nobody used it anymore. Nobody wants to go to God because He won't answer our prayers. Nobody goes to that altar because He doesn't answer my prayers. Do you understand God wants the best for your life? God wants to answer prayers His way, not your way. God wants you to look at your life and say, God, what is it in my life that needs repaired? And God wants to answer, and God wants to pour out blessings in your life but something isn't right. And so he, they began to stack this altar, and they began to, and I'm going to make it quick here, they began to say, he says, call down the gods, call, call down Baal and say, bring fire to the sacrifice. And man, they went from morning until afternoon. They did everything that they knew to try to call down God's answer. And this is what we do, church. We do all these things to twist God's arm. We do all these things to convince God, to motivate God. They were dancing around it. They were cutting their flesh. They were doing all kinds of things trying to get God to answer. And God, the, the God, Baal, would not answer. Baal had no answer. There was no Baal. Baal didn't exist. Baal wasn't around. Baal was high. They had been led astray. There was no God that answers the prayers that they were praying. And, and right there in front of them, the reality began to hit them. There is no bell. There is no other God. There's no other gods before. There's only one God. And he's mad right now. There's nobody else that's going to answer your prayer. There's nobody else that's going to fill your need. There's nobody else that can do it. It's all been a lie. The enemy said, come with me. And you know, all this sexual morality will fill it. All this money will fill it. All this success will fill it. And we sit there sitting empty because God won't give material things. And God's saying, something's wrong. Repair the altar because there is a real God. He really wants to bless you. And he laughed and he mocked them. And people say, why is God mocking? Why is Elijah mocking them? He said, in fact, my, Elijah begins to laugh. He said, well, maybe he's behind the bush going to the bathroom. Maybe he took a trip and he's just not available. Maybe he, uh, uh, maybe he's taking a phone call or something. Or maybe he's just doing something else. And he begins to say all these reasons why their God, Bell won't answer. And he's laughing and mocking. And some people don't like that, that he's doing that. But in Proverbs chapter 4, listen. I believe this is what it symbolizes. Listen to this line here. Very important to hear this. It says, Get wisdom, get insight, do not forget and do not turn away from the words of the Lord. Do not forsake her, which is wisdom. She will keep you, she will love you, she will guard you. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom and whatever you get, get insight. Prize her highly and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a graceful garland. She will bestow on you a beautiful crown. Hear my son and accept my words. 
that the years of your life may be many. I have taught you the way of wisdom. I've led you in the path of uprightness. When you walk, uh, your step will be not hamper. When you run, it will not stumble. Keep hold of instruction. Guard her. Then listen to this. I can't find the one I was looking for. just popped in my head. But the Bible says in Proverbs there that wisdom begins to laugh. Wisdom begins to mock. Wisdom begins to say the calamity. Anybody see where that's at in there? Somebody finds that, let me know. Where wisdom begins to laugh and wisdom begins to mock. And I believe this is what God's saying is we've trusted in things and wisdom is just laughing at us. Wisdom is mocking us. Wisdom is saying, why did you not trust in God? Why did you trust in the things of the world? Why did you trust in things God didn't intend for you to have? And so God, Elijah comes along and Elijah says, now God, show them that you are the real God here. And God brings a fire down from heaven and consumes sacrifice. You say, man, what does that represent? That represents that God has put His approval on this person, Elijah. The fire has come down and God wants to pour His fire upon this church. God wants to begin to consume the sacrifice of this church. God wants to begin to bring revival. And now finally... The one thing James wanted us to notice is God is finally answering the prayer of a righteous man. As soon as God consumes that sacrifice, Elijah says, do you hear something? He said, I hear rain. He began to sense that God was about to answer the prayer, that rain was about to fall. And church, what a great message for this church God wants to do a mighty work. How long did he pray? Three and a half years. God wants to begin to bring revival. I sound like Porky there for a minute. (laughs) God wanted to bring revival to this dark world Elijah lived in. God wants to bring revival to this house. But he needs people that will begin to pray. People that will begin not to give up. People that will begin to... Do not question God every time they don't get the way. Don't question God every time He doesn't do it. He wants people that persistently, three and a half years, and God finally began to bring rain on them. God began to pour it out. God began to bless the prayers of one righteous person. You understand, one nobody got a hold of God because he trusted God through everything. You say, well, didn't he know Carmel was coming? Church, that's the amazing thing. You say, well, if God would tell me he would uh, save my kids if I would pray, well, then I would do it. Or if God was going to bless me and my family with what I need, it's not, a, it's not a bad thing to pray for a good job. It's not a bad thing to pray for your kids. It's not a bad thing to pray for blessing. But here's the thing. He had no idea that Carmel was going to happen. He had no idea that every single prophet, all 850 of them, were on that mountain, were defeated and removed from their ministry as false prophets. He didn't know that. He didn't know when he sat by the brook that God was going to do such an amazing thing through him. How many know that? 
When you're sitting on the brook there and you're being cut and God's cutting things off, say, what's he cutting off? Pride. Say, but I want to answer prayer. If you had an answer prayer right now, your pride would be so lifted up that God couldn't do it through you. And he did not know when God was developing him as a man of God by that brook that Carmel was going to happen. He didn't know when he went to Zarephath and he was ministering to the poorest of the poor. He didn't know when he was ministering to a widow in the backyard of Jezebel. He didn't know that God was going to raise him up so mighty. He didn't know that God was going to put him on top of a mountain against the prophet Baal and he was going to turn his entire nation around. All he knew is, I love God, I'm going to be faithful, don't turn my back on God no matter what, for better or for worse, for sis or for death, I'm going to serve the living God and I am the one who lives up I'm the one who serves the living God and not Baal. And he won the victory through the power of God, and then God began to reveal to him, Elijah, there's more than just you. There's other people out there. You have ever felt alone in your battle, alone in your un, in your doubt, in your and here's what I'm trying to tell you, church. You might have had a time where God didn't answer your prayer. But understand, God will answer your prayer. You can't give up. You must persevere. You must know. You must take the time to not miss out on blessing because you gave up too soon. You say, well, I prayed for my family and nothing happened. Stay with God. Trust God. Be confident in God because He does want to answer your prayer. You say, well, God hasn't blessed my finances and I asked. Don't give up or you're going to miss. You say, well, wait a minute. I've got this addiction. And man, I prayed and prayed. I was faithful to pray. And God says, don't give up to sin. He's doing something in you to bring that miracle. Trust me. Some of you know what I'm talking about, don't you? Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. You'd stand at your feet. We're going to come up and take the communion. Probably late. I felt really empowered. Here it is. Thank you. Because you have, this is Psalms or Proverbs. Oh, I'm sorry, I was in the wrong chapter then. Because you have ignored all my counsel and have none of my reproof, I will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you. Terror strikes you like the storm and calamity comes like a whirlwind when distress and anguish come upon you. Then they will call upon me. Listen to this. Listen, everybody. Then they will call upon me and I will not answer them. Isn't that scary? That's wisdom saying, I will not answer because you won't listen to me. But what God is saying is, be patient, trust me, be obedient to me, and I'm going to answer you. I promise I'll answer you. I promise I will answer you. And some of us are giving up uh, way too early, and God wants to bless your life. In fact, um, we're going to take communion here. And... um, I'll read a scripture here because Corinthians matches up so perfectly with exactly what Elijah was going through in his day. It says in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven. So then, whoever eats this bread and drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat the bread and drink the cup. You hear what he's saying? This is a serious moment before we take communion. And we all assume, hey, you know what? We're all in the Lord. 
But he's saying, examine ourselves to see where we are if we're in the Lord. Because what could be happening is, God's ears could be shut because we're not living the life that God wants us to live. And so he's saying, examine yourselves when you take this, because number one, you might not even be in the Lord, and you're drinking condemnation yourself. And then the second thing he says here is, he says, for those who eat and drink without discerning the body, eat and drink judgment to themselves. That is why among you, listen to this, there are those of you who are weak, there are those of you who are sick, and there are a number of you who have fallen asleep. For if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. Praise the Lord. We're going to take a moment here. We're going to communion. One worship song. All right, if you could. I want you guys to pray during this worship song. We're going to do it a little different. I want you to pray, and sometime during this song, if you feel like you're in the right place with the Lord, I want you to come up and get the elements yourself. If you're not right with the Lord, and you say, God, I want prayers answered in my life. Forgive me. He said, forgiveness is available. Consider your life. And just ask the Lord for forgiveness. He said, I am faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. And then we're just going to pray that God would pour a blessing upon you and your family. Praise the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. I just want to encourage you. I don't know about you, but for me, for me, I get in trouble when God doesn't answer my prayer. Because that's when you start looking around for other ways to satisfy. You say to yourself, you know, I can have more success doing it this way. I can make myself happier doing it this way. And how many times do we abandon God? And God's just saying, trust me. No matter how it looks, no matter what your mind's telling you, because we've all been there. The prayer wasn't answered. And so we started looking for other ways. And God's saying, just relax. Just be patient. Trust me. And we can do that. No matter what, for better or for worse, it's like a marriage vow, really. No matter what, I'm not going to abandon God. I'm going to trust Him for better or for worse, whether it's good or whether it's bad. It matters not to me. 
I'm going to trust the Lord through everything. And so as we take this communion, just live by that. I'm going to trust you no matter what. If I've got a problem, I'm going to trust you to answer. I don't care how long it takes, Lord. Do what you have to do. Praise the Lord. from the Lord but I also deliver to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me Heavenly Father, we thank you so much, Lord, that your ways are bigger than our ways, that you're not stuck in our little world, Lord, that you don't just see what we see, God, that you see the bigger picture. We thank you that you don't answer the prayers always the way that we ask them, Lord, but you answer them in the best way for us, Lord, and for you. We would have never thought of a way of sending your Son to be our Savior, your plan for our salvation would not have been one that a man would have ever thought of, Lord. But even in that, your ways were so much bigger and you were thinking of us, God, and you died for us. Jesus, we thank you that you were willing to be broken for us, that you sacrificed yourself so we could be one with you. And in our darkest moments, Lord, we would have never thought to even accept that, but you did it. We thank you and we give you thanks. Jesus' name. Let's proceed to bread. covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Or as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death and comes. Father God, thank you, Lord, that know that you know the way this whole thing works, Lord, and that uh, we trust, Lord, that your guidance in our life is for our good. God, I just thank you that uh, you're so forgive, Lord, that when we don't have that trust, Lord, that you're faithful to forgive us, Lord, and to put us on the right track, Lord, and that, that, that your plan is for much more than what we see and we hear on earth, Lord, but for an eternity with you, God, we, we have faith in that. Thank you, but thankful, Lord, that you made a net, made a way, and made an opportunity for us to spend forever with you. In Jesus' name.
prayer and thankful for the forgiveness. I pray today that if you take that message, I'm going to close the word of prayer. But God is trying to repair the altar of your heart. That's what the message is about. You've abandoned that altar. That may mean that God did answer a prayer. And so we decided to move on to something else. And what God's trying to do is to prepare, repair the altar of our heart because it hasn't been in use. We've looked for other ways to answer our needs and our prayers. And what God wants to do is open that up again and say, Hey, let's make sacrifices on that altar of your heart. And let's just give everything to me and trust me. Don't abandon it. Don't abandon it and move to something else. You say, what's having other gods before you? You're not going to go out and worship Baal. You're just going to abandon God, right? So we want to make sure we don't do that. Heavenly Father, right now, Lord, I pray that you move your people to action, Lord God. Lord, our thoughts mean nothing unless we move with action, Lord. Father, I pray that your spirit would move upon hearts. Repair altars, Lord God, that haven't been used for a long time, Lord. Lord, let them trust you through the good and the bad, through the difficult and through the easy, Lord God. Father, in blessings, Lord God, and in hard times, Lord, for better and worse, Lord, let them serve you with all of their heart, Lord, and trust you. In your name we pray, and everybody said, Amen. If you need prayer, we'll be up here too, if anybody needs prayer.